So we learned about emes, truth, right? And how not, it's not only a tzaddik who has truth, but even the bani has truth, because truth, being that which lasts forever, can't be, just, can't be a, um, something present in the love that the tzaddik, is, the, the bani is experiencing, but in as much as that that love is a manifestation of their ability to produce that love, which is constant, there is truth present. Right? And the idea being here is that truth is actually unique to Hashem. Only Hashem is true. Or, as I like to say, only Hashem is truly true. What's the difference between only Hashem is true? And only Hashem is truly true? I just think it sounds nice. Okay. And it makes people's minds go, what? What does that mean? <laughs> you, too, many, too many uses of the same word in a sentence confuses people. Um, and so... Because to be, to be true doesn't just mean that it lasts forever. What it means is that it doesn't depend on anything outside of itself. Something which is only true of Hashem. See, I used it again. And so it's Hashem's presence in anything that makes it true. Hashem is present in the love that Tzadik's experiencing. Whereas in the Bainini, the Hashem is present in the Nishama's, um ability to be sensitive to Hashem, to treat Hashem as real, that is made manifest during prayer. Now, at the same time, these truths are, this is only truth on the level of the Baini. It's not true for the level of the Tzaddik. Okay? Um, and the idea being is that the, the truth that, as it is present in the Tzaddik is much more, permeates his being much more fully than the truth as it's present in the Baini. Okay. Um, now, the next little bit um, is, this, is going to talk a little bit about truth, about why it has to be that the Bainini has truth. Like, why can't we just like bite the bone and say, I guess there's no truth for Bainini. Like, too bad. There's no truth. God is not present in the Bainini's love. Which would be sad, right? It would be psychologically disconcerting. It would be, you know, theologically uncomfortable. But maybe that's just the way it is. And to be fair, that Hasidus is not interested in making things sound nice just because they make us feel better, right? Rabbi Kaufman does that. Someone had a question. I did. Yes. So just as we get aimed at the beginning, like, I think last question we talked about, Hamashem's presence is resting in the Das faculty. Mm-hmm. Can we go into a similar spiral in the in the tzaddik, it's in the emotions. It's in, it's in the entire... So, oh, which sphere is it? Chesed, words first, that's a chad yisoy. Oh, yes. But we're specifically focusing on chesed because of its association with love, or gvura because of its association with love. Um, and then the rest kind of follow for reasons we discussed in other sphere classes. They're branching off of spheres one to the other. Yes? Could the Bani, is the Bani trying to get the das of his godly soul to spread to the chesed of his godly soul? As, or... That is a way of putting it. Yes. We could quibble if that's the best way to put it, but, you know, it's a good way of putting it. What's a better way of putting it? I don't want to go into it because it actually becomes a very complicated thing. Um, there are pages and pages and pages of Chassidus analyzing exactly what is the relationship in how the intellect of the godly soul produces emotions through contemplation um, and to what degree it's 
what is the right way of thinking about it, and because and because in, in, in actuality it's extremely complex. So what you described is, is is accurate if you kind of zoom out and think of it very broadly. If you zoom in, um, it's not, it, 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 I'll give you an analogy for the. If someone were to say you eat food in order to get energy, that's true, right? But food is not a battery, and your body is not like a phone, right? It doesn't. It's not just like there's a bunch of energy and there's a bunch of potential energy, and then you know the circuits just start flowing, right? There's something more complex, right? There's a, you know, the process of digestion begins by biting the food into small pieces, right? And then you have dissolving in saliva and then, you know, stomach acids, right? And there's a whole process of absorption through this small intestine, right? Like, we go on and on and on. You get my point, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're going to zoom out and say is the idea that the das of the godly soul being brought to the surface then has that penetrating effect onto the midas, then yes, that broadly speaking is true. The thing reason why I'm a little hesitant is I don't want you to think of that so absolutely that you learn more chassidish, like, but it doesn't fit. It's like, it's true in a very general sense. If you start zooming in the details, it becomes incredibly more complex, which is often true about most things. Good? All right. Four, truth is the attribute of Jacob, who is called the middle bolt which secures everything from end to end, from the highest gradations and degrees to the end of all grades. Okay, so now we're learning. So, so this, is, this, this is an explanatory statement. In other words, why is it that the Bainani has truth, even though he's not on the level of the Tzaddik? Why isn't this truth restricted to the level of the Tzaddik? Because the truth is the attribute of Yaakov. So the first thing I want to do is I want to talk about the difference between three forefathers. And we will make reference to our Kabbalah charts over there. Okay. And we will both make reference to it in the sense of praising it for how informative it is and mocking it for how uninformative it is. Good? Okay. So, Yaakov is associated with the attribute of truth. Truth is associated with the attribute of Teferis. If you had to pick one of the spheres on your Kabbalah chart and say that one connects the idea of truth would be Tferis. So Tferis is that yellow ball in the middle. Avraham is, corresponds to Chesed, which is the... Is that teal? Did you say that's teal? Just blue? Yeah. No, my, my children are trying to convince me that... Because in Hebrew, the word for blue is Kachol, and Kachol is a dark blue, and they use a different word for that color called Tchelet. Mm-hmm. So my kids are always correcting me. I say, it's, it's Kachol, and like, no, 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 it's Tchelet. Like, what English would be good for that? Okay, we'll call it blue. And then we have red for Gvura, which is, you know, fitting. Okay? And Gvura would be associated with Yitzchak. Now, what you'll notice if you look on your Kabbalah chart over there is that the middle line, the line that runs vertically through Tferis, goes higher all the way up to Kesser and lower all the way down to Malchus. You see that? Whereas the line that runs vertically through Chesed and Gevurah does not go as high and it does not go as low. See that? So what does that indicate about truth? Mm-hmm. I'm confusing and there's a glare. What? We're going to look at it again. Chesed, the line does not go as high. It goes, on, it goes high up as the line that goes through Tferis. The line that goes through Tferis goes all the way up to Kesser and goes all the way down to Melchus. So the line is taller in terms of its height, and it goes lower in terms of its descent. Whereas the line that runs vertically through Chesed and Gevura does not go as high, it does not go as low. 
What is that supposed to symbolize? Truth. That truth, no matter how high up you go, still truth. and no matter how low you go, still but when you're telling with chesed or gvura, these other attributes, there's a limit to them. You can get so high that they don't have any place and you can go so low that they can't be manifest. Okay? So. Which one of those is, represents Emes? The middle one, it's Ferris. Oh. Okay, so the idea is like this. That, that vertical line, the heights of those vertical lines represent the the relevance of that particular thing. So the idea is, that, so see, if you look at the chart and you see that chesed is below chachma, so in some sense, there's, a, there's, a, there's something continuous about chachma and chesed, such that you might actually think of chachma as the source of chesed. You might think of chesed beginning already as part of chachma before it becomes something in its own right. And then you would look down and you would see the below chesed is Netzach, and you say, well, Netzach is in a certain sense just a continuation of Chachma. That even though Chachma is one particular thing, that whole line has like a theme to it. It's a chesed-themed line, and it's beginning, its highest point is Chachma, its lowest point is Netzach, but there's something higher than Chachma, and at that point, chesed has no purchase, it has no relevance, it has no place. And there's something lower than Netzach, at which point, again, the chesed has no relevance, there's no purchase, there's no place. So it is constrained. There's an upper limit above it. There's a lower limit below it. And the same thing if you look at the gvur line that runs vertically through Gvura. But if you look at the line that runs through Tferes, you see it goes all the way up to the highest point, Kassar. It goes all the way down to the lowest point, Malchus, implying that, that Tferes, which corresponds to the quality of truth, has a legitimacy, has a place on the highest of levels all the way down to the lowest of levels. So if Yaakov is an embodiment of Tzfers, which is associated with truth, then Yaakov is something which runs, as it says, from the highest degree to the lowest degree, whereas, say, Chesed, which Avram embodied, or Gvura, which Yitzhak embodied, has an upper limit above which it cannot reach and a lower limit below which it cannot reach. Okay. Now, that does not explain what that means. It's just what, it's just, that's, what that, that's why the chart is drawn that way. That's what, what that's supposed to represent. Okay? Um... So that was making reference to chart. Now can I mock the chart? Yeah. Okay. On that chart, you have circles with names and lines connecting them, right? Yeah. The circles represent something, the lines represent something, right? Do the circles and lines tell you what they represent? No. The fact that two things are both represented by lines would mislead you into thinking that they're the same thing, right? So, for instance, there's a line running from Kesser all the way down through Malchus, right? That vertical line. There's a line running from Chachma all the way down to Netzach, also vertical line, right? You can see one is shorter than the other, but other than that, can you tell? They're both lines. They both seemingly represent the same thing. The fact that that line doesn't go higher, the line that goes from, from Yis- through Chesed, that doesn't go higher than Chachma, doesn't go lower than Netzach, 
is that something external to what that line represents or is that something intrinsic to what that line represents? So it's could the line be higher? I'll, I'll use a more physical analogy, okay? If you look at a map, you ever see a map? You see a river on a map, right? A little blue line, okay. And the blue line is shaped the way it's shaped. Could the blue line be shaped differently? Well, I'm not asking you anything. Well, so to ask you the question, if I realize that the blue line is a river, represents a river, so I have to ask myself, well, could the river be shaped differently? Because that's the question, right? Mm-hmm. Can a river just have any old shape? No. No. What are some con- What are some constraints on the shape of a river? Right. So let's speak a little bit more specific, concrete things. Um, what will I never find with a river? Will a river ever run in a straight vertical line? No, it's not possible for a river. You can, you can go look at the, the, the physics of it, but a river can't run in a straight vertical line because of water flow and erosion. Can a river be as wide at its source as it is as its mouth? No. No, okay. Um, so there's these constraints to river, right? So if I'm looking at the blue line and I don't have any understanding of a river, right? To my mind, I mean, the blue line is shaped like that, but the blue line might have just as easily gone straight. But if I realize that the blue line is just representation of the river, and I know what a river is, it becomes obvious that the blue line couldn't just be a straight line. And if the blue line is like, if the, if, if the map is zoomed in enough, so we're getting also the width of the river, which is relevant for like if you're looking at a map for bridges and stuff like that, right? It's not just a thin like line where the river is, and you know width, right? It's clear to you that a map which has the river equally wide at its source and at its base is clearly wrong, right? There's no way there's such a river, right? Now, if you don't know anything about what the spheres actually are, and someone made a Kabbalah chart, and they put the Kesser down, right, where the Chachma, between the Chachma and the Bina, right? And they moved, and they moved the Netzach and Yisod down to where the Malchus is, right? Like, I don't know, as far as the lines and circles go, you could do that, right? But if you really knew what those lines represented, you'd realize that you couldn't do that, right? Which means, is the vertical line in the middle mean the same thing as the two vertical lines on the side? No. No. It's like, it's, it's qualitatively a different thing. But if you're working off of the chart, you don't get that from a chart, do you? This is what the danger of charts is. Charts don't give you quality. If you know what the chart is supposed to represent, the chart is a good way of symbolizing it. If you don't know what the chart is supposed to represent, Right. It, it's very arbitrary. If you you look at that line, like I mean, that you're familiar with it, right? But you could just as easily, you know, make all the lines the same length, and you say, well, what, what difference does it make? But if you knew what those lines represented, you knew there's something about the line running through Chesed and Gevura that doesn't allow it to go as high. It in essence cannot be as high as the line running through Tiferes. It in essence can't be as good as far down as the line running through. And that essential difference between the two, the two lines on the outside versus that line running through the middle is not evident from the chart. And like, you can't represent that on the chart. You need the oral explanation. That's right. Why, why are we grappling with this? I think it's an important thing for people to know because when people deal with mysticism, because it's hard to relate to, people gravitate to the ability to symbolically represent it and suffice with that. Without the explanations? Mm-hmm. People will often most want to know where does it go? How do I, the, the, in other words, the people, uh, 
you know, let me let me give you an example. Um, there are three kinds of people mentioned in the Tanya: Tzaddik, a Russian, a Benini, right? So if we're gonna make a chart, who goes on the top? Who goes in the middle? Who goes on the bottom? Why? Because in order of their tzitkas. Well, that's not something discussed in Tanya tzitkas. So we use them for something discussed. In order of their godly connection. That's wrong, actually. And in, in, in many dimensions, a Bainani has a higher or deeper connection than a Tzaddik. Really? Yes, we haven't gotten to that yet, but yes. It's in order of, of how, like, of, of their love for Hashem. It's in order of their love for Hashem. All right, so you have to first understand, right? So if someone walks around saying, oh, I know the order. It's like Tzaddik's on the top and the Bainani's in the middle. And, like, and then they think they understand. They don't understand because that's describing a specific relationship. You understood that relationship and you got to understand, for instance... Um, who brings more pleasure to Hashem through their service of Hashem, the Benini or the Tzaddik? The Benini. For why? We're not going to get into it. It just happens to be a Benini. The al makes an allusion to this in the beginning of chapter 14, which I'm not going to dwell on other than to say that he, um, it says that every person should strive to be a Benini. We would read that meaning like every person who has not become a Tzaddik yet. But the Tzemach Tzedek, the Chabad Rebbe said, no, no, that means even Tzedekim should try to emulate being a Benini because there's something about being a Benini that surpasses being a Tzaddik. What that means is not for right now. So simply knowing what comes on, what comes on top, what's in the middle, what's on the bottom, doesn't suffice for understanding it. People often feel it, it does. You have to, it, it's, a, it's above in what sense? It's below in what sense? And what you start to realize is that certain kinds of relationships are flexible and certain kinds of relationships are not. Okay? Um... I'll use family relationships as, a, as an example. This is purely halachic. We're not just. Can somebody be both your cousin and your spouse halachically? Yeah. Yes. Can someone be both your sibling and your spouse halachically? No. no. Right? Okay. Um, so now, if you're making a family tree, right, it's very simple, right? You have a father and a mother, then a bunch of siblings, right? And then the siblings will have spouses, and then they'll have. And the next generation is all very nice. But now if two of those cousins get married, now what, what do you have to do in your family tree? Rearrange You've got to rearrange it to represent that, right? But then that kind of distorts, right? So you have to decide what do you want to represent? Do you want to represent lineage? Do you want to represent marriage? What do you want to prioritize in your chart? This is what happens when you make, when you chart something. You have to figure out what you're trying to represent. Some of those, some, therefore something can be rearranged in flexible ways because there's many different things to represent, but certain things cannot. Like at the end of the day, like, you know, there's, if you're going to rep- if you're going to if you're going to represent on a map the flow of a river, you're going to have to do it in accordance with how rivers actually flow, right? You can't just decide I want to represent the river by a straight line running from north to south, because there's no such thing as a river just running in a straight line from north to south. They meander. So why does this chart have to be drawn the way it does? Because there's something about the line that runs through Chesed and Vur that don't allow it to go as high up or as far down. And there's something about the line that runs through Tiferes which allows it to go all the way up and all the way down. And so the chart can represent that if you know it's supposed to represent that, but you have to know that it represents that. And knowing it represents that, it's not the same thing as understanding why it's the case. And so now I'll move to understanding why it's the case. So what we're going to do is actually we're first going to talk about Chesed and Gevura, and then we'll come back to understanding what's different about Tiferes, what's different about truth. Okay. Why is it not just Emes? What is, why the word Tiferes? Tiferes is the name of a sphere. Emes is the name of a philosophical idea. 
the sphere of Tiferes is associated with Emes. Doesn't Tiferes mean glory? It means beauty. If you had one translate the woman like glory, it would probably be Hode. But translating the spheres is, is like translating um, technical terms um, that are borrowed from several languages several times over. They're not very useful. Um, okay. Um, so let's, what we're going to do is we're going to do the analogy of a human being. And we're going to talk about the tendency, the, the, the kindness. We're going to talk about kindness, kindness being a human attribute which parallels chesed. And we're going to talk about what is the upper bound of kindness and the lower bound of kindness. Okay, now first we need to find what would be upper and lower. Right? This is all an analogy. This is not talking about God. This is talking about spheres. This is not talking about spheres. This is talking about human beings, right? What is upper and what is lower? So upper is what we mean when we speak about more internal and lower is more external. So just to get our... Orientations correctly. What is on a higher level for our purposes? Thought or speech? Thought. Why? It's more internal. It's more internal, right? A, you only you know of your thoughts. People other than you do not know of your thoughts, whereas speech you do know. B, thinking happens without you intending to do so, whereas speech requires a decision to speak, right? We can, we can make more differences, right? The fact you have to decide to speak tells you everywhere there's, there's, there's an element of engaging beyond yourself. Thinking is, even when you're in an entirely passive state, you're still thinking about something, even if you're not consciously paying attention to what you're thinking about. Okay. Also, you might notice that, as a general, your thoughts are make intuitive sense to you. Um, but when you put them into words, sometimes you discover that it's not as sensible it's from like an outside point of view. Okay. Um, fine. So what is the... So, what is kindness? More, in, more internal. Apparently. No, what is it? Like, this is a piece of paper, right? And if I asked you what a piece of paper is, you could tell me. It's like, it's some material that is made very, very flat, that is able to be written or printed on in order to, you know, easily transmit information, right? Describe what paper, so what is kindness? It's hard to describe, it's more... It is hard to describe, that's what makes this fun. Mm-hmm. It, like, like being amazed at someone else's ability to do things you can't do? No. That is beyond yourself, right? And is thinking, okay, but it's not kindness. In some way extending yourself for someone else? It has to really involve someone else, usually. Okay, well that's already interesting, it involves someone else. Okay, well, we now have an upper limit of kindness. What is you our upper limit of kindness? Uh, yeah, you can be kind to yourself, but then it's still like yourself and other, right? It's like yourself to yourself. Right, okay. Yeah. So you, you've, done, was that, you've done something very, very important, which is somebody extended the idea. And what you realize is that by extending the idea, you're not really extending the idea. You have to do one of two things. Either you're diluting it to the point of meaninglessness, or you have to redefine it in subtler terms. So if I can be kind to myself, and kindness is going to retain any kind of meaning as a word, then I have to start redefining the terms of self and other, right? Let's not go that deep, but you are right. Like we're, we, we could be kind to ourselves because human beings have this ability to have different layers of their, of their awareness of self. So you could be one, your conscious awareness of yourself could be kind to some part of yourself that you're aware of, yes. But without making that complication, kindness has to involve someone else. So 
on a level where the only thing that matters is your very self, can you be kind? No. Kindness begins with the awareness that reality, there's others beyond yourself. Like, a condition for the experience of kindness to occur is the awareness of others beyond yourself. Good? So when you are in a state of being totally focused on yourself, either for like entirely selfish egotistical reasons, or maybe you're in some kind of sublime awareness of like a deep inner truth of yourself, I don't care whatever it is, but if you're too inward, kindness cannot exist as a phenomenon. Okay, what would be the limit of kindness going the opposite direction? How far, right? How far down, how far out of yourself? Well, at what point is something no longer kindness? It has negative ramifications. No. I think, yeah, kind of what, like, what? Fatia is saying, we can't involve you. Like, you can't have kindness if you're completely out of it. That's right. That's the other condition. You have to still be involved. Isn't that obvious? It, it might be obvious, but I want it, but, uh, but, but, but when we think through the ramifications of it, it's not going to be so obvious. So, for instance, we're going to treat this... Um, I'm very curious to read what's in here, by the way. Um, we're going to treat this as something which still is kind. Now, why would I say that this is still kind? It's because when I open this up and I read it, okay, this piece of paper is meant to convey to me a sense of what? Appreciation. Appreciation, right? So you feel something and you're trying to share that positive feeling with me. And this becomes the medium in which that happens, right? On the other hand, um, somebody did empty the dumpster outside of my house this week. So is the fact that there's now room in the dumpster for me to throw more trash in kindness? Forget the paid. Well, I want to think about the receiving end. When, right, when I go to the dumpster and there's room there, is that physical phenomenon meant to convey to me? Am I supposed to pick up something from someone else? Ooh, there's somebody who's trying to share something with me, an emotion, an experience, no. money. No, right? In other words, what's happening is just there's a phenomenon in my world, which is that I brought my place to throw my trash, so my house doesn't go full of trash and street doesn't become a disaster. And it's true somebody else caused that to occur, but that's not really an act of kindness. This is kindness because when I read it, I have a sense of someone else's reaching out to me. Right? Make sense? So kindness has two conditions. An other. And an other. And a self. Now, that doesn't define kindness, right? Because kindness is a relationship between a self and another. So when the self is too deep within the self, that all there is to you is yourself, there can't be kindness. And when the other is completely detached from, from the self, they've been affected. So again, in that case, I'm the other, right? So when I go to the dumpster, right, it happens to be that something has happened because of this, of this person. But their self is not part of my life. It's just... I have an empty place to put my trash. There's a, the, the kindness occurs in the space where the self and the other are relating to each other. So the upper bound of kindness is that first spot within yourself where you are aware of the other and have an interest in showing kindness. 
And the lower limit of kindness is the mental space of the recipient when the recipient has a sense that they're being shared with, they're being, they're being given something by someone else, that someone else is ex- expressing something to them. And within that, you have a bunch of different layers, right? But once something is totally, when someone is totally either wrapped up in themselves or they've moved, or all they're dealing with is the effect of what someone else has done, kindness doesn't exist anymore. So, we are in this building. Did someone build the building? Mm -hmm. Has their kindness reached us because the building exists? No. No. What's the other one? If you feel too wrapped inside yourself, then you If you feel too wrapped inside yourself. Like, what's the negative of the... We have markers. Sometimes it's easier to draw things. Because now that we know what we're trying to represent, we can draw it and represent it. Because we are... Quite physical. Okay. Okay. We're going to use green for the self. Kindness exists here, and kindness exists here. So, okay, uh, I'll explain to you why, 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 why I've done it this way. Okay, so, let's use me as the self, okay? So, when I'm focused on, let's say, how much I want to grow in understanding Tanya. On that level of my psyche, there's no room for kindness. Why? Because the only thing that matters to me, the only thing I'm relating to is my own understanding, my own growth, right? So this is just myself. But when I recognize that I might understand Tanya more than someone else, now there's the possibility, although not the necessity, for me to actually want to share my knowledge of Tanya with that person. Make sense? So within myself, I have an awareness of this space of the other, and within that, I might relate to them in a kind way, meaning I would like to share what I have. In this case, it's knowledge. Good? So the kindness can exist here. The kindness cannot exist over there. Now let's talk about the other, in this case, you. Okay? You have these whole lives going on. Now, if you happen to, let's say, know some Tanya, There's no kindness in that. On the other hand, if you have a sense that I am trying to teach you something, right, and you have the sense that you're gaining from me because I'm actually interested in giving something to you, right? So in that mental space, not of what you, not just the fact that you know, but the fact that you are learning from someone, there's kindness. So in what I know for myself, there's no kindness. In what you know, for your, what you know, there's no kindness. But in my awareness that I know that you don't know, now I might want to give you, and your awareness that I'm teaching you, in those spaces, kindness exists. Making space in yourself for someone else. That's right. Kindness exists in the space when the self for the other, or the other has the space for the self. That's 
too. It probably would be easier if I did it. It's not about the exchange, it. though. It's about just the idea of holding space for the other. It's equal well, so, to. So actually, let's do it this way. It's, let's put it as. There's a reason why I didn't want to do it this way. Oh, yeah, do something other. You could, I, I, I wanted to also do it Amura. Okay. No. So, for instance, we would not say, we would not say that if I throw out my trash, and as a result of you might throw out my trash, you now have something that there's any kindness there. It is true that I've had an effect on you. But when we're talking about kindness in Chassidus, we are talking about something which is relational, not something which is simply causal. Okay? I relate to you in a way of kindness. You, you are being related to in a way of kindness. The simple fact that I have something, and now you have the thing, but there's no relation at all, that's not called kindness. Okay. So, for instance, inanimate objects cannot be kind to each other. Right? The fire is not being kind to the heat. So it's rather being kind to the water by heating it. Why not? It's not thinking about it. Right, the fire is just being hot, and the water is just being water, and the result is that the water gets hot. But like, there's no relationship between them. Well, it's let's use it. Let's use it. Let's use a good word that I'm more comfortable with. It's psychological. Whether it's thought, whether it's emotional, like like we like, there's a whole range in which this 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 experience of kindness can exist. And by the way, it can exist within the self of the kind person. It can exist and exist in the other who's receiving the kindness, but only where the other has space for the self inhabiting them, and the only space where the self has space for a sense of the other. When I'm only relating to myself, there's no kindness. When you're only relating to yourself, there's no kindness. Kindness is, and the reason why I did it this way as opposed to just like making it, I could have done it like this. And say the kindness exists in that middle space. But I wanted you to realize that kindness exists on two levels. Which are the two levels that it exists on? Right, so if I'm, right, if I'm being kind to you, the kindness both exists in my experience and the, kind, the same kindness also exists in your experience. Regardless of if you're receiving or giving? Right, it's different, right? If, right for instance, you, you put um, feelings of appreciation into those words. I'm hopefully going to get those feelings of appreciation out of those words. So my experience of that appreciation and your experience of that appreciation is going to be very different. But you'll experience it in a way of kindness, and I'll experience it in a way of kindness. You'll experience it as being the ones who are kind, and I'll experience being the one who's receiving the kindness. Okay. Um, you know the difference between the way an academic learns Torah versus a religious Jew learns Torah? Depends well, on whether you put yourself into it. That's one difference. There's another difference. Do you feel like Hashem is trying to be kind to you? He's trying to, just like you tried to put your appreciation into those words, I'm trying to get the appreciation from the words. Is Hashem trying to relate, be kind, trying to share something to himself with me through the words of Torah? I'm trying to receive that. Okay? That's what, so kindness is limited. It exists in the overlap between the self and the other, but I drew it this way because I want you to appreciate there's the way the giver experiences the kindness, there's the way the recipient experiences the kindness. Okay? That makes sense? Mm -hmm. So there are conditions for kindness. It is a psychological phenomenon and it exists only in a certain psychological space where you have or some sense of an other. Whether you are the giver having a sense of the recipient or the recipient having a sense of the giver. 
Okay, now, um, that's true about chesed. What about gavura? Well, if gavura is, if chesed is like kindness, then what would gavura be? Just make it overly simple. Yeah. Restrict. So look, look, the opposite of kind very simply is I'm withholding something. Okay? Now, what is it? If I have no sense that you could be given it, can I really be said to be withholding it? No. If I'm busy studying Tanya and I'm not teaching you, I'm not withholding my knowledge. But if I decide in the preparation of the class, or in the middle of the class, not to bring up certain points, or not to dwell on certain points, then what am I doing? Withholding. I'm withholding, right? And be now on the receiving, receiving end. The simple fact that you don't have something is not the same sense as having feeling it's being withheld from you. To be withheld from you is the sense that there's someone who could be giving it to you, and they are. No. So again, where does that's why I didn't want to use. So where does the where does the withholding exist within my, the self that has space for the other, or the other that has a sense of the the self, right? In other words, if you it's only in that relational space that chesed and gavura can exist. Now, they exist in different ways, right? They're still in the same space. But they still can only occupy the same space. Can I put water in a cup? Yes. Can I put tea in a cup? Yes. Can I put tanya in a cup? No. No. Tanya can't exist in a cup. Can I put chesed in a cabinet? No. Can I put chesed in, in, in a person's psyche? Yes. Okay, but anywhere in the psyche? No. No, in a very limited spot in the psyche. The part of the person who's experiencing the kindness is awareness of another, or the part of that other person's awareness of the kind person. Mm. And the same thing is going to also be true of Kavura. These things only exist in those kind of special overlapping psychological spaces. That's a condition for their existence. And therefore, outside it, they cannot. So now let's go look at our Kabbalah chart. Tesser and Malchus. Kesser, what's special about Kesser? Kesser is a spot where there's only room for Hashem. And Malchus is a spot, and this is, I'm going to say this even though this is wrong, but we're going to just go with it because it's true for, as far as our opinion. It's a spot where there's only room for creation. Where does chesed exist? Between both. Between both, but there's no way. Where does the kindness exist? The kindness exists in the part of myself which has a space for you, or the part of you which has an awareness of me. Where does the sphere of chesed or gavura exist? It exists. Its whole way of relating is only legitimate in as much as there's Hashem and something else, something else and Hashem. But once it's just pure Hashem or pure something else, then, then chesed and gavura can't really exist. Because they're completely relational. Like they're completely relational. They have a condition for their existence. Every quality that is about how you relate has a condition for its existence, which is a sense of relation, which is a me having a sense of a you, a you having a sense of a me. Outside of that, no relationship qualities exist. That make sense? Okay. Why does it need the chesed, though? Like, God... I don't know, that's not relevant for our purposes. But the, when you say creation, you mean, like, relational. 
yeah, in other words, if, if, if Hashem is the self and we're the other, then Malchus is a sphere that's all about the other, and Kesser is a sphere that's all about himself. And therefore, the line that runs through Chesed can't go up to Kesser and can't go down to Malchus. I'm not really telling you what Kesser and Malchus are. I'm not even telling you what Chesed is as a sphere. All I'm just using as an analogy, the same way there's a level of my psyche which has no room for chesed because it's just me. Me living my life and aware of my things. And there's a level of your psyche where there's no room for my chesed because it's just you living your life. The room for chesed is when I'm aware of you and you're aware of me. So the same thing. There's a space where there's godliness and there's world. And in that sense, those things can, there's, there's a different ways that they can God, this can relate to the world. Chesed, Gvura, whatever the differences are. So what does that tell us about Chesed and Gvura? That they are conditions for their existence. What have we learned about truth? Why is truth permanent? Why is truth everlasting? It's unconditional. So can anything that exists as part of the relationship between two things be true? Anything which is a part of the relationship can't be true because anything that's part of a relationship has a condition. What's the condition? You have both parties of the relationship. Kindness cannot be true. Why? Because kindness presupposes there's a me aware of a you. There's a you aware of a me. And only then can we speak about am I being generous or am I withholding? But when you're bound up with Hashem. Wait, wait. So, as holy as Avraham was, was he an embodiment of truth? No. No. Why not? In as much as we're focusing on him being an embodiment of chesed, no. Because Avraham's whole mode of relating to Hashem presupposes that what? There is a God. There's a God. There's a world. The way that, there's a way that God relates to the world. There's a way the world relates to God. And we need to bring those together. What about Yitzchak? Same thing, there's a God, there's a world, and the whole thing is to bring out how different and transcendent God is from the world. Right? Like a teacher who withholds information because he doesn't think it's relevant to class. So something that exists in that, this is why, for instance, many of the Jewish philosophers say that it's wrong to say that Hashem is kind. Because to say Hashem is kind means Hashem exists in a space where of him plus others. Because that's where kindness exists. Kindness as a concept exists there. Right? There's religions that say God is love. Same problem. What is love? Relational. It's relational. Anything which is relational isn't true. Because anything that's relational depends on two things. And then we can talk about how those two things are relative to each other. How they relate to each other. Okay, so then what's, what's going, so, so, so I'm going to go back to these lines. What does this line represent? From Chachma through Chesed through Netzach, these are all the ways in which something relates to something else in a, in a, yeah, in a way it's called, we call going down. After all, Chachma is how you get a new idea, Right? And that's how you persevere. And there's always a way of going out or going down, okay? And then this line represents how things relate in a way of going up. 
where you're withholding things. In Pina, you're saying, wait, that doesn't make sense. I don't understand it. Okay. I'm not going to elaborate too much on each, each of the six things. But, so this line actually has a quality to it. This line is the idea of relating in a way of connecting and reaching out and coming down and engaging. And this line represents relating in the opposite, pulling back, or withholding, of isolating. But this line doesn't represent relating at all. Because if this line represented relating, it couldn't go all the way this down, it couldn't go this far up. So what does this line represent? It's not about, it's not representing relating at all. What is it representing? Truth. It's representing truth. It's representing that there's something that depends on nothing else. And therefore, regardless of where you are, it must be present there in some way. Because to say it's not present means it depends on something. Can you survive underwater? What? Well, what does it depend on? How long? How much oxygen you have. You count down with some oxygen already in your lungs, so that's good for a few minutes, right? If you're really talented, you can go even for like up to 20 minutes probably. I think there's something like the world record, something around that, but I could be wrong. If you carry some oxygen outside of you, longer, right? You carry a lot of oxygen, months, submarines, right? But all you're doing is accommodating your dependency on oxygen, right? Truth is something that doesn't depend on anything else. So if it's true, can you say, oh, the truth isn't there? The truth isn't present. If the truth isn't present there, then what's keeping it out of there? What's keeping it out of there is that it's, that place is not fitting for the truth. That place doesn't have the proper ability to receive the truth. If there's, some, if there's something about that place that doesn't allow the truth to be there, then that's indicating the truth has a dependency. In other words, a truth which isn't true everywhere is true nowhere. Because if you're saying it is, it's true over here, but it's not over there, so you're saying why here and not there? Oh, because of X. Oh, so that truth is dependent on X, so it's not really truth. So for instance, is logic true? No. Can you give me an argument that show me that logic isn't true? Which is kind of funny because you're using logic to show that logic isn't true, which is actually a, a very important idea in Hasidus, but we're not going to go into that. Can you give me a logical argument to show me that logic isn't true? Yes, truth is not dependent on anything else. Mm -hmm. And logic is dependent on linking facts together or is, I guess, dependent on dependencies. And therefore... Okay. So, 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 I, so, so, You've got, okay, so that's good, but it only gets us part of the Logic, in terms of at least the practice of logic, clearly isn't true because logic, the practice of logic is finding the linkages between things that presuppose there are things that need to be linked, right? So it depends on, logic as, a, as something you do, like logical thinking depends on multiplicity. It's about trying to turn something multiple into something unified. So if you don't have something multiple to start off with, there's no way, there's no way to think logically, right? That's why the most simple logical structure is um, a sentence. What's a sentence? A subject and a predicate. Something about something. Some, just a thing in and of itself you can't be logical about. So th that's, that's good. But you can go a little bit deeper actually also. And this deeper thing is a little bit more practical. Um, what can you do with logic? You can, by, with logic, you can show that things are logical. 
or illogical. Can you comfort someone with logic? Sometimes. No, you cannot comfort someone with logic. Try it. <laughs> they're not. They, if they're very logical. They're not. No, no, that's the thing. If they're very logical, then they're not distressed to begin with. No, but what if they just don't see the logic that will make them feel better? Logic doesn't make people feel better. Because it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't the illogic that made them feel worse. That's the point. then you haven't comforted them. Then you've just shown them they were delusional. But if you were, it's like, it's like, it's like, it's, it's, it's like you know, you're probably, it's like this. The, per, the person's like, the person, the per, it's like this. Yeah, let, me explain, well, let me explain you the difference between comforting and not comforting. A person is afraid to get on the plane because they're like, if I get on the plane, I might die. You're like, no, no, no. Statistically speaking, you're very unlikely to die. And so it's just not, doesn't make, you know, you know if you're not worried about X, Y, and Z, killing you because they're so statistically unlikely to cause death, well, then, you should, then for that logic, it's inconsistent for you to be worried about the plane. Right. Okay. And let's say the person was really only anxious because they were unaware of how safe flying actually is. Then it might work. Then it might work. But A, that's what's happened. B, you know that's the case, you haven't really comforted them because the thing they're actually distressed about is their own mortality and you haven't comforted them about that. Yeah. <laughs> you just got them to avoid <laughs> the issue, right? Because really what they've discovered, if you were to be honest, is I am distressed by the fact that my life will end at some point uh -huh. and okay. not at the point of my choosing. Uh -huh. Probably when I have more things that I want to do with my life. How do I cope with the distress of facing my mortality? And like, well, logically, you're unlikely to die by the plane. Like, that didn't, like... The 16 still talks about how many conversations have gone on. <laughs> As I like to say, intellect is good for solving intellectual problems. It's not good for doing anything else. Hammers are really good for getting nails into wood. They're not very good for getting screws into wood. Screwdrivers are better for that. Intellect, intellect is one of the most arrogant things that exists. Because intellect goes around pretending that it can solve all problems when it can only solve one specific kind of problem. The intellectual kind. And the minute your issue is not an intellectual issue, it is utterly useless. So its effectiveness is conditional on the fact that things perfectly conform to its <laughs> Like, at least our emotions are open to the fact that maybe emotions are not the best way of dealing with a particular problem, right? It's like if a person is emotional, like, the, I have this, this thing. What happens when an artist meets an intellectual and they have a discussion? The artist walks away very frustrated and the intellectual walks away with a theory of art. Because instead of recognizing the legitimacy of the art as like an aesthetic experience, they just walk away with more concepts. And the artist, it's like, but, but that's not this. Right? Like without even getting into mysticism, just on pure human experience, it should be fairly obvious that logic is not true. It gives off the illusion of truth because once you're approaching something with, a, with logic, like emotions have this way of like, there's a way in which in a certain sense, emotions are more mature than the mind, than the intellect in a certain way, which is that when a person is emotional, the emotion kind of burns itself out to a point where the emotion kind of recognizes there needs to be 
more. Like if a person is like very, very anxious, very, very distraught, very, very overjoyous, right? The intensity of the emotion can be very overwhelming as if it's just a pure emotional experience. But what happens after a while? It dies down enough that, 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 that like, the emotion is like, I need to do something or I need to process the emotion. Like, the emotion calls for more, more facets of our psychology to come into play. But if a person gets like, really intellectual, really conceptual about something, really logical about something, they can become so blind to the fact that like, that only deals with a very narrow space of existence. The irony is I'm about to ask you, does that make sense? Now, um, there is an interesting phenomenon, which is that what happens if you make the decision, though, to turn the, the logic and reason onto itself? What happens if the logic starts to ask the question, how true am I? Then it can actually start to recognize its own limitations in a deeper way than any other thing. So it's like, you know, they say like there's, there's things that like when they're good, they're really, really good, and they're bad, they're really, really, really bad. They're never in the middle. Logic intellect is like that. Like if you, if you use it the wrong way, it's extremely destructive and you use it the right way, it's extremely powerful. One of the great powers of intellect is it has the power to recognize its own limitations more fully than any other human experience, more than desire, more than love, more than any, any other kind of thing. It can recognize its own... It, 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 it's where it has no place where it has no place and really step away and just, like as much as the emotions recognize there needs to be things other than the emotions the emotions are like but, but I still have a role to play here and the intellect can actually come to a place where they're like I have no role to play and just step back completely so it's a double edged sword but anyway it, so you know both in terms of the function of intellect that it only solves like problems of like where you have many things trying to find consistency and also the fact there's other stuff that we qualitatively experience it's just logic is not relevant like if you're dating somebody and you think through logically and everything works out, but you just don't really enjoy being around the person. Not you don't enjoy it. You just not like you're like anti, you don't like dislike the person, you're just like that. Then should you marry them? Well, Why not? It's not logic's not enough. It's not enough. What's missing? What's missing says the logic. What's missing? What with this, 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 like what's the issue? Another realm outside of logic. Another realm. There's some other realm called clicking, called chemistry, called feeling. There's some other realm. Yep. Make sense? That's okay. why it's not true because it has limitations and it's dependent on logic, like constraints of logic. So how did Yaakov serve Hashem? Yaakov serves Hashem with a very basic sense. Hashem is true. Therefore, no matter what's going on, Hashem is, by definition, relevant. No matter what's going on, Hashem has a place here. Why? Because Hashem is true. It cannot be there is, there is something which is devoid of Hashem's presence, of Hashem's relevance, of Hashem's connection to it. Because that would mean that Hashem isn't true and Hashem is true. Do we see that in his life? I don't know. I don't want to know. Like, do you see how kind... Other than, other than Chazal telling us that Avram Avinu like, had a lot of guests... Like, if you read through the Chumash, that's so obvious that he was a kind person. I mean, and Yitzchak, like, what do you see in Yitzchak, right? He, he dug some wells. So Yaakov lied to his father. Like, it's funny. Well, that, well, that what I'm going to talk about. Lying is a sign of truth. Let's think about this. Right? This is where it gets deep. By the way, this is, this is a very important idea. What, is, what does it mean lying is a sign of truth? You know what's right, so you can twist it. In other words... 
I'll, I'll use the example of understanding. If you learn something, what's, how can you tell if you really understood it? If you have to use the exact same explanations, the exact same analogies, the exact same order of presentation as you were taught it in order to present it to someone else, you don't really understand it. If you can totally rearrange it completely without um, corrupting the idea, then you really understand it. Okay. So how much can you mislead, deceive, misrepresent without actually losing the integrity of what's going on? Well, that depends on how much you have a sense of what it's really all about, right? If you don't have a sense of really all about it, you have to be very rigid. You know, you take exactly as you got it, right? So that's how you have to represent it. So, there, in other words, in other words, there's a kind. There's two kinds of there's two kinds of, of lying. There's a lying where what you're doing is you are preventing the truth from going forward, and there's a kind of lying which is the opposite, which is you are concealing the truth. You're, you're helping the truth come forward. And I'll use my favorite example, which is called a trick question. What is a trick question? The answer's not what you would think it would be. Right, so why ask a trick question? To trip someone else up. Why? It's no. <laughs> because in order for a person to really appreciate an idea, they have to appreciate that they don't appreciate it, that it's different from how they would thought, right? One of the ways the human mind works is that we work based off of contrast. So if, if you hear an idea which is different than the idea you already know, but it's presented in a way that you could twist it into being what you already think you know, then that's what you're going to hear. You're just going to hear reinforcement of what you already know. Whereas if you get asked a question and then the the flaw in your thinking becomes exposed, now you're able to appreciate, oh, this is some, something different, and then you're able to get it. So is the trick question meant to obscure the truth or reveal the truth? Yeah. If you're using an education, it's meant to reveal the truth. <coughs> but you do that by asking something which is very misleading. Okay? On the other hand, if you don't really get the idea, you probably should just want to stay things as, stick as close to like the straight and narrow as possible because you might end up distorting it. Okay? Um, I am not a community rabbi. And this is something I'm very grateful for. Do you know what community rabbis have to do? Lead a community? They have to lie. A lot of lying. Now, there's... Not talking about like, you know, saying things that are just, you know, outright blatantly false. Like, um, like you get up to the community and you say, um, you know, you're allowed to eat pork. You're not allowed to eat pork. Someone comes and asks you a question about some issue in their personal life in the community. And you know, if you were to just tell them the truth as it is, what would happen? They wouldn't stay. They'd be upset. So what do you do? Massage it. Now you have to do this very carefully. You have to do it in a way that they'll receive it now. And then when they find out how you massaged it, they're not going to be upset about being manipulated. And you have to do it in a way that you're not actually corrupting the truth. Right? 
Your knowledge of being, your knowledge of what the holy texts say only goes so far in helping you do this. You have to really get on a fundamental level how the truth of the Torah is true on the life of that person in order to figure out how to say things, all right? And to the outside observer who's a Puritan about it, you have to say things exactly as they are, it might look very much like you are. These are not like really well. You're not lying though. It depends on your point of view. To the outside person who just takes things as it is, like you're not telling them the truth. The truth is, it's forbidden. You should have just said it's forbidden and like be done with it. Well, but, but you have that, that itself, receiving is a multi-stage process. Like think about the trick question. The way the student originally hears the trick question is in one way, right? But after they hear the trick, after the trick question has been exposed as a trick question, they hear it differently, right? So part of understanding this is having a sense of scale, right? And this is the issue is that if you're standing on the outside of this and you're looking for what are the external markers I can use to figure out, you're, you're, you're going to fail because uh, I'll give you like a physical example. Um, give me an example of something in the physical world which doesn't change. That intuitively, if it was in a class, people like relate to like physical landmarks. It's not changing. There's a hill. Right? Leave aside people. Do hills change? Okay. They own a real longer than it. Like, like if, if you start talking about on scales of centuries, yeah. So, for instance, um, Yerushalayim, the, old, like the, the, the ancient city of Yerushalayim, is on a mountaintop. It's not anymore. Now, some of that has to do with people building. Some of that has to do, though, with erosion. Because what happens is that the, the top of the mountain gets shorter the valleys next to the mountain get filled up both from the erosion and also from the erosion from the streams going on. And so what ends up happening is there starts to be an equalizing process. So like the idea of, of, of climbing up to the old city of, of David Amel, which they now know as Ir David, was like a big job to do in, in biblical times. And nowadays, if you look at it, the valley is like not that, things change, right? But in the scan of one person's lifetime, this is a construction project that's like, it's fixed. If you look at a plant from day to day, it doesn't look like it's growing. You look at it in time-lapse photography over weeks, it looks like it's really moving, right? So having a sense of what's true and what's not true, it requires something much deeper. And, and one of the things that Chassidah says about, about, about this kind of thing is that if you're approaching something from the outside, you're not gonna really be able to tell. We said, oh, the symptom of truth is that it lasts forever, right? But what are you looking for? I'll just give you a very simple. The Torah is true, right? Since Hashem gave us the Torah, the Torah is true. Do we observe the Torah mitzvahs exactly the same way no. as Moshe Rabbeinu did? No. So what about the Torah is true? You have to figure out where is that truth manifest, right? What is it that lasts forever? It's not like, it's not like Moshe Rabbeinu, as much as we make jokes about this sometimes, but it's not like Moshe Rabbeinu is walking around with a strimal on his head, right? It's a... So what... So the, the issue that you're struggling with is... is, is is, in, is an, an, an inherent feature of the issue. 
when you're talking about truth, that means it's, it's, it's always relevant, it's always present. But if it's always present, it's not going to be so readily identifiable what it looks like. And you're not always going to necessarily know what you're supposed to be looking for. And so a person who doesn't have a sense of the truth itself won't necessarily be able to identify it. Which is why if you live in a world where you don't want to have people who are privileged in their knowledge, but you want to democratize knowledge, like in the modern world, you start denying a notion of truth. That's why you stop thinking of this truth as a real thing. Because you... And, you know, when we talk about the, the, the physical world, we talk about logic, you know, barring the extremes of society, everybody more or less has access to them. So if you tell me that this is a dinosaur, I'll say, I mean, we all see that it's not, right? But if you tell me there's truth there and I have no sense of truth, how am I supposed to know if you're misleading me or not? How do I know what to look for? And that's the weird kind of paradox of our truth. If it exists everywhere, there's no conditions for existence, then there's no predefined way of how it has to look. And if there's no predefined way of how it has to look, then you cannot come from the outside and figure out whether it's there or not. There's a fancy word for this, which is called unfalsifiable. Does anyone know what unfalsifiable means? You cannot make it false. You can't show that it's false. The truth is unfalsifiable. This truth, as we've defined it, is unfalsifiable. Because what are you going to say? I don't see it. But if it's really true, it's not dependent on you being able to see it. So how could you know that it's not there? So you either have a sense of the truth or you don't. So what is Yaakov serving Hashem? Not by showing out, okay, how do we bring Hashem's presence into the world? Not... How, does, how do we show that Hashem transcends all of reality, right? Relationship to Hashem. Just like, there's no such thing as Hashem not being present, not being relevant, not being there. But then what does that look like? That could look like anything. In fact, it could look like some things which seem very manipulative and distorted because you don't really know what you're looking for. And going back to what I said about a community rabbi, a community rabbi has to have a sense that Judaism is relevant to the lives of all of his community members in their actual lives. That's what makes a community rabbi a community rabbi, if they're effective. That means they have to have a kind of creativity. That creativity to an outside observer in many contexts looks dishonest. Not that they're being dishonest, but it's not so easy to tell that from the outside. Good? Okay, the takeaway from this is, if, this is, if that's what truth is, is there possible to say there's a state of being where truth is lacking? Could there be a state of serving Hashem where there's no truth in it? No. Because if there was, then the truth wouldn't be. True. And that's what he says, that truth is something which goes from the highest levels to the lowest levels. Because if it didn't, it wouldn't be true. It would have conditions on where it can exist and where it can't exist. Now, a fair question to ask is then why doesn't the Russia have a truth? Yeah, I was going to say, it has to have some limitation. So we're going to talk about that next week. Why the Russia has no truth given what we just said about truth. Could you explain one more time why Yaakov's lying shows on truth? No, it doesn't. It, it, Yaakov's, once you understand the idea that the truth is that it, it, it has no limitations, then is there any set rules of what it has to look like? Okay, so if I say something that is radically different from what you know to be the truth, what does that sound like? Shocker. Sounds like a lie. But if the truth is really true, there's no conditions on what it has to look like. So when the truth appears radically different than when you thought it was supposed to look like, it will seem to you like a lie, even though it's... But you could distort truth, no? You can... If you distort truth, it's not truth anymore. 
Because remember, we're not talking about facts. Like if I say that this is not a cup, okay, then I'm saying something that's not correct. Yeah, but but this, this cup is not a truth because it wasn't a cup. It'll stop being a cup. It's it's not a truth. A truth is something which has no dependencies on anything outside of itself. If that's the case, it doesn't have to look like anything in particular. If it doesn't have to look like anything in particular, when you see it in a way you're not expecting to see it, it will. And then someone's claiming you it's the same truth. It will seem to you like it's being distorted and corrupted. as himself and he realized that his father was going to perceive him as his brother but he was still appearing as himself in in truth he was the one who came to get the blessing yeah, you, you, um, and also he used words that he knew would be interpreted differently but he never actually said anything that wasn't True. So is that, you, is that that, but, but what you're getting at is the technicalities of it. I'm trying to talk about the, the essence of the matter. The, like Once you go of the assumption that he's not trying to depart from the truth, then you have to see how that's not a departure from the truth. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is, if you take the idea of truth seriously, then the expectation should be you should not always be able to identify the truth at first glance because if it really has no conditions, then there's no rule it has to look like the last time you saw it. And so therefore, the only way to really identify the truth is to have some direct sense of truth itself. Is that something we had and lost? Or is it something that like is just... Our neshama has. That's how Benin is able to daven. Right? I'll put it like this. At one point in Judaism, the oral Torah was not written down, yeah? Now, the, now, there's a lot of written down, yeah? Did that destroy Judaism? Did it corrupt Judaism or not? Well, that's the thing. It's like one could make an argument that did, right? Because a Judaism where you only have a small book of Tanakh and everything else has to be oral is a radically different way of relating to Judaism, practicing Judaism and, and teaching Judaism, living Judaism than Judaism that has libraries of books, right? Just not the same. So arguably, something changed very radically, right? How do you know that what changed very radically did not compromise the essence of what Judaism is? You would have to have some kind of independent sense of its essence to know that. And that's apparently what the sages who decided it was okay to write everything down must have had if you believe it didn't corrupt Judaism. And they said, well, what is that? I don't know. I don't know. I, don't, I guess I don't have that sense, at least not in a conscious way. Maybe some sort of deep part of my soul has a sense. And so Yaakov had the sense that in every situation there is, there is a way to be connected to God because God is true. What does that look like? You can't know a priori what that's going to look like until you're there. I mean, didn't that wasn't the mode in which they served Hashem. It's not like they were devoid of any sense of that complete, but, but Avram was all about how do I bring a sense of God to the world? And it was all about how do I give the world a sense that God is beyond? It's, it's a very different thing. There's a, there's, a, there's a way that's supposed to look, and therefore there are limits to it. But it's not just like a tzaddik thing. It's, it's a, not a tzaddik thing. It's a, it, 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 it has nothing to do with tzaddik versus, versus bainan. Right, but... It's, just, it's an ashamas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Because the neshama every neshama has a sense of truth, but the question is, is that the, that the way in which the neshama is approaching serving Hashem, or is that just an aspect of it, right? So Avram's whole thing was, how do I bring a sense of Hashem to the world? That presupposes there's a Hashem and a world, and they have to, one has to get a sense of the other, right? There's conditions for that, right? Yitzchak says, how do I make it clear that Hashem transcends the world against the same issue? But Yaakov is like, no matter where you are, there's Hashem. You just have to be in touch with that. Right? That's a very different thing altogether. Also, that's probably connected to why his life was so miserable. Whose? Yaakov's life was very miserable. Wife? Life. Life. <laughs> well, his life she was life. Um, why does that explain it? Because if there's no conditions, then even the most horrible circumstances, there's still connection to Hashem, right? So that would make his life terrible? Yeah. That, would, that, would, that would explain how he could serve Hashem even in terrible mm. circumstances. Right? Anyone there could be things that... I, what? Anyone can serve Hashem in terrible circumstances. No. Mm. Like, no, but he saw truth in that. Not, not, in, is it, mm-hmm. not every mode of serving Hashem works in all in terrible circumstances. Mm-hmm. Like, to use just a very extreme example, the previous ever when he was in prison... Like, the whole idea that, uh, that Sadiq comes into the world to reveal godliness in the world, when he's in prison, he's not revealing godliness in the world. He knows he's not revealing godliness in the world. And so he's like, well, what's the point? Mm. And, nice. Right? And his point was, well, is that no matter where you are, Hashem is there, and there's a truth of being connected to Hashem no matter what. That works even in the darkest places. But the idea that you're on a mission to shed light, dark conditions where, like, no, you're not doing that. You can't do that. It's not available to you. If you think of them as modes of approaching serving Hashem rather than the person himself, that makes it a little clearer. Have a wonderful Purim, a wonderful Shabbos. I'll see you next week. Thank you.